0: Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. Let's say you've got a group of people. They're genetically very similar, they live right near each other, and then some start to get sick and some don't. You're gonna ask an obvious question. What is going on? Well, the answer in this particular case hits pretty close to home. Actually, super close to home. It's the story of actions we take all the time that we think are fine and that might not really be. But before we get to that, let's take a side trip to Finland, And a place called Karelia.
1: That after the end of World War II was split in two. And so half of Karelia became Russia and the other half stayed in Finland.
0: Rob Dunn is a professor of applied ecology at North Carolina State and the Natural History Museum of Denmark.
1: And those two pieces of Karelia had very different socioeconomic fates. And so on the Russian side, Russian Karelia stayed relatively poor, relatively rural, and people lived really very traditional lives still. Still connected to nature in part because of poverty. On the Finnish side, you saw much more of a Western European scenario where you had many more roads, you had many more new houses, houses sealed tight, people were moving indoors.
0: On the Russian side, people died younger. There were lots of deaths from alcohol and smoking. On the Finnish side, people lived longer like they do in lots of modernized places. The separate fates of the Russians and the Finns in Karelia, who had once lived together before the war, it seemed totally predictable until some really odd data started to surface. One of the scientists who paid attention to this data was a man named Ilka Hansky, who didn't even study humans.
1: Ilka Hansky spent most of his life working as kind of a tropical ecologist or working on islands studying butterflies, trying to figure out the general rules of life.
0: But in 2010, Hansky heard a presentation that changed his life. The presentation showed that beginning in about 1950, a few years after World War II ended, a whole bunch of diseases started becoming a lot more common, especially in rich countries. Multiple sclerosis just about tripled, Crohn's disease and asthma more than doubled, and so did type 1 diabetes. And all these afflictions had something in common. They were all autoimmune diseases. Hanske didn't know much about medicine, but he knew a lot about nature.
1: And what he was seeing when he looked globally is that those same places where we... we, had moved into the most urban settings, where we'd done away with nature to the greatest extent, seemed to be the places where those diseases were becoming most common.
0: Which is why Corellia was so valuable. You couldn't chalk up the enormous differences in autoimmune and allergy rates to genetics. It had to be environment that was making the difference.
1: In Russia, after the war, there was basically no rise in allergy or asthma or any of these other inflammatory diseases. In contrast, in Finland, right across the border, the same people, you saw rapid rises in all of those, those chronic autoimmune maladies. And so it looked like there was something about our relationship to nature. And so he would go on with his team to study this in one city of Finland, where they were able to show that if you tracked um, sort of Finnish young adults, those young adults who had more biodiversity in their backyards like one might see in Russia, had different microbes on their skin and were at reduced risk of allergy to a whole bunch of different things.
0: Rob Dunn, the ecology professor, argues, we've been running a bit of an experiment on ourselves since roughly the end of World War II. We've retreated to our homes, our offices, our cars, our classrooms. We're less likely to live on farms. We're less likely to live in rural areas. And at the same time, indoor spaces have become a lot cleaner. Think of your house like a jungle with tons of different species in it, because honestly, that's kind of what it is. But as more powerful cleaners and cleansers have come along, parts of that jungle have been under attack. Now, in some ways, keeping homes clean is smart because dirty water and vermin and insects, those have all helped spread disease. The question now is, have we gotten a little too clean?
1: So the average American now spends about 23 out of 24 hours of the day in a car or in a house or in an office building. I mean, people recently been calling for kids need to spend at least four hours a day outside and we're so far from that. But even if we were spending four hours a day outside, it's so different from anything in our our recent history or evolutionary history, that it really is a, a new moment in our biology, I think. So,
0: you know, for a long time, I mean, forever, really, for as long as humans have been humans, um, we've worried about what's outside our homes, right? Like the bears that might want to eat us or um, diseases that are waiting out there and could afflict us. When do you think it was that we started worrying about what was inside our homes?
1: Well, I think we started to notice what was inside our homes in the late 1600s when we started to notice that that there were invisible species, that if you used a microscope, you would see them, and suddenly there was a world we didn't know about. But initially, we didn't worry about them. The the predominant response to the species around us was one of wonder. But once we started to realize that some of those species could be dangerous, that germ theory comes to the fore and we realize that some of these things can kill us, then we really started to switch in the late 1700s, early 1800s, um, and then from there t- toward this view of the life inside our homes as being, it, when it's present, dangerous and something we should get rid of, which, I mean, saved save millions of lives, but we went too far.
0: If we could shrink down to a microscopic level and, and really like, take a tour of our homes, um, you know, of our apartments, and really see what's there, what's there?
1: Yeah, that's a great way to put that question. Um, so, so if you were to walk along the surfaces of your home or apartment, the first thing you were, would notice if you were, uh, let's say, bacteria-sized, is that everything is covered in bacteria. And in some places, that's more dead bacteria. In some places, it's more living bacteria. But there's no surface that's spared of bacteria of life ever. And if you you were to find some surface like that, something very unusual is going on. So that would be the first thing. But then the other thing is you would notice in different parts of the home, there are very different species doing different things. And so in the kitchen, you have all sorts of species that are, you know, either helping us to make specific kinds of food like sourdough bread and kimchi and uh, beer and wine and cheese and yogurt or that are sort of actively competing with us for our food. In the bathroom, you would encounter sort of our falling apart. And in the bed, you would encounter uh, the bacteria that fall off of us at night and then the mites that are eating those bacteria. And so it would sort of be like, you know, going off on a ship like Darwin to travel the world. And every time you came around some corner, there'd be something a little bit new and something we'd have to really ponder in terms of what it meant.
0: Can you give an example or two of, like, um, these little Critters that are around us that are helping us. Like what? In what ways are they helping us?
1: Yeah. So I mean, one interesting example, and this grosses everybody out, but it's just a reality, is that your all your water that you drink, your tap water and bottled water, it's all full of microscopic species. And one of the things we're starting to see is if you look at which species those are, if there are a bunch of species in there they all compete with each other. And so none really wins out and no problematic species tend to be present. But if there are very few species, which often happens in really heavily chlorinated water, there's no competition. And so the species that thrive are just the ones that are chlorine tolerant. And so even in your tap water, it it appears to be the case that there are a bunch of species that are helping to keep problem species in check. The microbes in yogurt, most of those come from like the danon yogurt most of the danon microbes come from a, a bulgarian guy uh, <laughs> just some his, guy his in microbes, bulgaria yeah, just sure. some guy yeah um, <laughs> and, and, and so, so danon is the a modified version of the name of the guy who took some yogurt from bulgaria moved it to spain and started the danon empire hmm. but the original microbe in that yogurt came from a yogurt maker in bulgaria and we we now know it's very clearly an animal associated gut microbe that appears to have been from either the the guy who made that yogurt initially or somebody before him and you know many types of yogurt now depend on that bulgaricus uh species to produce the yogurt Hmm. on one level maybe that seems gross on another level i mean this is it's a it's a microbe species that we depended on in our somebody depended on their gut and we now depend on in much the same way to produce flavors in a food.
0: Let's talk a little bit about our changing view of cleanliness. Um, You have a great quote in your book from um, Queen Elizabeth I, who was queen of England for just about the second half of the 16th century. And she said, I bathe once a month whether I need it or not. And I think that's, like, a great indicator <laughs> of how our views about human cleanliness has changed. Like, even if at the end of the month I don't need this bath, I'm going to take it anyway. Um, just give me a sense, in your research, when did you find that, like, I mean, clearly, if somebody said that today, they would be ridiculed. Um, when did that start to change?
1: So, um well, it's, it started to change a little bit with germ theory. So once we knew that some of these bacteria, species, and viruses could cause us harm and, and were really uh, I mean, killing many, many people, there was the sense that we needed more control. And so w- with that, a sense that we needed to clean more. But but initially, it wasn't this sort of um, kill everything sense. It, it was a sense that we needed to control some of these species. How do we best do it? Soap and water works well distancing the outflow of feces from our house from the inflow of water seems b- very beneficial, things like that. But then sort of slowly, it became a more complete sense of we need to get rid of everything. And where you most see a shift is sort of post-World War II, when the, the sentiments of war move from the battlefield into the home, and the language of, of the war also moves into the home. And so you start to see discussions about using pesticides, using antimicrobials to go to war with the life in your home. Hmm. And so this this militaristic sentiment moves into the house. And then slowly what happens is that, that the companies that want to sell you things that would help that to happen then advocate more and more f- for the, these new approaches to killing everything in your house. And I think antiperspirant is one of the craziest ones in this regard and, and the shifts in how we think about and use antiperspirant. Talk about
0: that a little bit. I mean, most people use antiperspirant as a matter of course. They think it's a good idea. Explain how antiperspirant to you is like a marker of how things changed. And do you think like people shouldn't be using it?
1: So antiperspirant is a pretty crazy thing in that. Uh, In your armpit, you have these apocrine glands, which are not sweat glands. It's a separate kind of gland, and its only function is to feed bacteria. And so the odors produced by armpits are entirely the product of what we feed the bacteria in armpits and then what what happens when they metabolize that food. And so we don't understand very well why that evolved, what function it served or serves, uh, and it's been very poorly studied. What we, we do know is that when you use antiperspirant, it sort of closes up those glands and it disfavors this slow-growing, old-growth forest of bacteria that historically we would have had in armpits. And what's interesting is if you look at uh, humans versus gorillas versus chimps, our armpits and skin microbes are very different from theirs, but it looks like a big part of that difference is our shift toward using antiperspirant. And so I think one of the first things to, to know then is that and using our antiperspirants, we've made a huge shift in which microbes are on our skin without being very conscious about wh- what that actually means about health and well-being. And one of the things we know is that the microbes that antiperspirants favor actually include a bunch of microbe species that are more attractive to mosquitoes. Huh. And, and so just as an example of the unusual sort of consequences when we don't think these things through. But the other thing about antiperspirants is that a big part of the population globally actually has a version of a gene associated with those apocrine glands that, that basically shuts them uh, almost completely down. And so in, in northern uh, China, for example, and in Japan, most people have that version of the apocrine gland in which they don't feed bacteria. And so it's totally different. And so there's, mm. there's essentially no armpit odor being produced because no bacteria are being fed. And yet in the last 10 years, antiperspirant use in northern Japan and northern China has gone up dramatically because of the social perception that this is a needed thing. And, and so on the one hand, we made this really fundamental change in which microbes were favoring. And on the other hand, we became so convinced that this was a necessary part of being a modern that w- we've bought into it even where it has, it has um, I mean, no real effect whatsoever. I mean, even if you were to say that those are odors we don't want.
0: Hmm. Um, another modern cleanliness product or kind of like category of products, I guess, um, that we've bought into is sanitizers, whether it's hand sanitizers, bathroom sanitizers, whatever it is you want to sanitize. Um, you say sanitizers have made evolution move faster and, and so much so that uh, the evolution on our bodies, in our homes, that's some of the fastest evolution in the world. Uh, what's going on?
1: So evolution speeds up when, the, when the, the selection pressures are stronger, when we're favoring some over others really strongly. And so I think if we think about those products you buy in the store that kill 99% of germs, that's sort of an ideal recipe for speeding up evolution hmm. because what you're doing is you're, you're rapidly favoring that 1%. And, and so anything with the genes that allow it to be in that 1%, is favored really, really quickly. And um, there was an experiment a couple of years ago now by Michael Baim, who's at Harvard, and he made a giant Petri dish. And then he kind of mimicked what we're doing with our daily lives in that Petri dish that as you move toward the center of it, there were higher and higher concentrations of antibiotics. And so you can imagine that's kind of like relates to the frequency of antibiotic use. So as you go toward the middle, we, somebody using more and more antibiotics. And then he introduced at either end of this giant petri dish, and you can go online and see this, bacteria that were totally susceptible to the antibiotics. And so they had no ability to resist it whatsoever. And then he just let them grow. And what he saw over 11 days is that in 11 days, they evolved resistance even to the highest concentrations of antibiotics. Yeah. And, and it's really a, an incredible visual representation of what's happening around us all the time as, as we're changing the ways in which we interact with the life around us. How do you deal with the
0: argument like that? You know, look, the world used to be much more dirty. I mean, I read you the quote from Elizabeth I, but also there were pandemics, um, you know, rats helped spread disease. Um, all, there were all sorts of pests around. Uh, people got things by shaking each other's hands. So, you know, maybe it's a good thing that we have all these alcohol based, you know, hand sanitizers and um you know, I mean, clearly antibiotics are a good thing, uh, although, you know, uh, you were in some ways you're talking about, like, the overuse of them. But, like, how do you find that line? Because in many ways, the cleanness of our world prevents us from getting a lot of bad things that people used to get once upon a time.
1: Well, so if, if we think about bacteria, there, in the U.S., there are about 20 species of bacteria that, that make people sick with any real frequency. And and so I think what we need to be doing is to figure out what are the best ways to control those 20 species, and especially those 20 species when they're most likely to cause problems. And so we know having drinking water that's free of fecal pathogens, like that that's, that saves millions of lives. We have to do it. Um, and we have to do a better job globally of making sure that's something everybody has access to, clean drinking water, where clean's a little bit in quotes there. You know, washing your hands with soap and water, that saves lives. Uh, it's a super effective way to control pathogens. It really works. Getting vaccinated, for the, especially for the viral things that plague us. These are all things that are core components of public health, and if we don't do them, we're in big trouble. But I think by the same token, we need to make sure that when we have these really strong tools with which to control uh, species around us with even more force, that we reserve those tools from when we most need them. And so if we have a great antibiotic that really works to control bacterial infections, it's wonderful that we have that. And when you have a bacterial infection that requires it, we should absolutely use it. But the truth is right now, the best predictor of the amount of use of antibiotics in the US on a given day is the flu and cold viruses. And the reason that that's true is because people get prescribed antibiotics so often for cold and flu that it's actually a better predictor than anything else of how much we're using antibiotics. Mm-hmm. And antibiotics don't kill cold and flu. They're viruses. And, and so I think we're in a moment where on the one hand, it's absolutely true. When you need an antibiotic, you should use it. When your doctor says you need an antibiotic, it can help save your life. But the vast majority of the time, we're actually using antibiotics when what we want to kill is not even bacterial. And in all likelihood, by killing the bacteria instead of a virus, if it's a cold or a flu, we're actually making ourselves more likely to get sick.
0: Hmm. Uh, let me switch gears here for a minute. We've been talking mostly about like these little critters that get into our homes or our bodies without us knowing it. Uh, there are obviously, though, bigger creatures that come in because we want them to. And I'm talking mostly about dogs or cats here. Um, what have you found is the effect of having pets on this kind of like ecosystem in your house?
1: So we we found um, and the big collective we here, not just my lab, but scientists in general, that when you invite a pet into your house, it has a huge impact on which other species you're exposed to. And right now we know the most about cats and dogs. And It's very clear that the effect of a dog and the effect of cat are very different. And so we suppose that it's also true that a gerbil is different, a guinea pig and a parrot. But for dogs, what we mostly see is they seem to bring in sort of soil-associated things and some fur-associated microbes. And it has an effect all over the whole house. And so if we swab your TV and you have a dog, we can tell whether or not you have a dog. I mean, it ends up being (laughs) an expensive party trick, but we can do it. (laughs) <laughs> um, but but it mostly seems beneficial. We, we've yet to see sort of a negative consequence of the, the dogs coming in. But with cats, we see a little bit of an effect on bacteria and fungi, much less than the dogs, maybe just because they're smaller. But we know that cats bring in some parasites that have really big effects on us. And so, for example, Toxoplasma gondii is this parasite that It's natural life cycle in the wild is that it gets into rats and mice. And then in order to have sex, it has to get into a cat. And so what it does is it moves to the brain of the rats and mice. It produces the precursors of dopamine, and it triggers changes in the behavior of the rats and mice, makes them more attracted to cats, less fearful, and much more likely to get eaten by a cat. Hmm. And for a long time, it was thought that that was just sort of a cute feature of nature of no relevance to humans. And But it's become more and more clear that when we're infected by that same parasite, that it's doing some similar things in our brains. And in fact, if people have been infected by this parasite, their personality profiles change. They're much more likely to be risky. They're much more likely to get into car accidents. Hmm. And, and so wow. that parasite in and of itself is an interesting story. But to me, it's, it's also a measure of the extent to which when we study any of these species in a little more detail, we that, find that there's a lot more going on than we think. And so probably there are many species that come in with cats and dogs and ferrets and, and what have you that are having effects on us. Most of the time we don't know. <laughs>
0: Rob Dunn is a professor of ecology at North Carolina State University. He's the author of Never Home Alone. From microbes to millipedes, camel crickets, and honeybees, the natural history of where we live. Rob, thanks so much for your time. This is great.
1: Oh, thank you, Kara. What a pleasure.
0: read more about the fascinating case of a region that was split in half after World War II where autoimmune and allergy rates skyrocketed in one half while not really budging in the other we've got the story for you at our website innovationhub.org we've also got more on celebrities who have been famously afraid of germs